Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Well, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning to uh, both here at Providence Road and there at Northeast. Um, I'm going to begin our sermon time by reading a statement from the elders of Mercy Church. I'm going to talk from my heart, and I'm going to talk from God's word a bit. This statement I'm going to read was released on Friday evening to our members and to the press. We were made aware through the Friday, November 18th evening news of the allegations in regard to the investigation of Benjamin Damron, who's been arrested for crimes against children. We grieve for those who were victims in this situation and we're praying for all those affected. Many of these news outlets and the police report identified Mr. Damron as being involved in a leadership capacity with Mercy Church. This is not true. We have been and remain in contact with the local authorities and will continue to support them in their investigation efforts. In our conversations with CMPD, we discovered that Mr. Damron has been falsely posing as a youth worker from our church and indicating he's a leader at Mercy. We'd like to clarify that Mr. Damron has never been involved in leadership or served in any capacity with Mercy Kids, Mercy Students, or any other ministry at Mercy Church and was never a member of Mercy Church. We have no record of Mr. Damron being engaged at Mercy in any way since our church opened in 2015. The safety of our children, the children in our care, is of the utmost importance to us. We take all matters regarding our security policies seriously, and we strongly encourage anyone with information about this situation to contact investigating authorities. Now let me talk for a minute, just from my heart as your pastor, and then go to God's word. I have had a whirlwind of emotions over the past 36 hours. My first emotion was shock, a disorienting level of shock. Uh, Neither I nor anyone else was uh, notified or asked about this before it showed up on the evening news. In fact, I found out because a reporter reached out to me uh, when I was on my way to dinner Friday night. That's that's disorienting. Once I I learned more about the situation, I, I admit to you, the overwhelming emotion that I had was anger. And I would be lying if I said I'm no longer angry. (laughs) Still angry. Angry at a bunch of things. Angry at this evil that this individual committed. I mean, I am am angry at that. I have two sons that are the same age of his victims. So it just, it adds a level of, I guess, relatability. I don't know how else to say that. I'm, I'm angry. Um, when I learned that he was not who the police had said he was in terms of relationship to our church, I was angry. Some of you have worked, many of you have worked so hard to build a church over the past seven years that's a safe place for victims of abuse, a safe place that guards against abusers. And I was, I started to get mad. I confess to you, I was mad that your reputation was being drugged through the mud. But then 
uh, Courtney, my wife, who is also Holy Spirit Junior in our marriage, like she reads what God is saying and that graciously lets me know. Um, she said, you know, Jesus is not up in the throne room of heaven pacing anxiously worried if Mercy's reputation is going to be exonerated by the CMPD. He is jealous for his name and he is in full control of all this. And for whatever reason, that allowed my heart to go where it should be, which is grief and deep care and concern for the victims of this horrendous evil. So guys, we don't need to have a defensive posture here. We need to have a caring posture, okay? And listen, everybody I've talked to about this over the past 36 hours, and it's been a lot, has gotten angry on our behalf. And if you feel that's okay, like I said, I still do. But I want to beg you this morning to look past your anger with me at the weightier matters. Um, there is a, there's a righteous anger that's, that's okay, but there's also the reality that children, and potentially children in our midst today, have been abused. And so there's... Our concerns are kind of threefold in the following order, and it's to care for victims and their families. That's chief. The second is to work with local authorities for justice in our community. We're on the same team. And the third is ensuring our church remains a safe place. So praise God, this particular abuser was arrested. And, you know, we're working on, we'll have a restraining order soon uh, and everything else. But I just know there's a very real chance that there are there's a family or families, I don't know, but a real chance someone is sitting in our midst today who has suffered sexual abuse, potentially as a child. And in fact, apart from this circumstance, what I know statistics say is that that's certainly true uh, in a group of people gathered like this. So I want to offer you comfort and hope from God's word today. Um, I said to our here at Providence Road when we were just opening the service, today is going to have a little bit of a, a funeral feel to it where a small percent have suffered a horrible pain that will be with them forever, and the rest of the church gathers around to grieve with them and support them. I was talking with my, uh, one of my sons this morning, and he's like, did you like write a whole new sermon last night or whatever? And I was like, bud, best way I can describe it, you know, we, uh, we love watching football together. And I said, man, we just, sometimes you call a play in the huddle, but when you get up to the line and see what's going on, you got to call a different play because you got to meet people where they are. And I think, so I, I say that only to tell you, as best I can read from praying and spending time with the Lord and talking with other elders, I think pivoting to care for uh, these families and to care for you and to help you care for others, I think this is the right call for us today. So I'm going to preach through Psalm 23, and then we're going to respond in worship and prayer. And I'm going to bring our elders up front uh, towards the end, and they will be available to pray over anyone, all right? If you have your Bible, make, it, make your way over to Psalm 23. I'll have the text on the screen for you. And let me, I, didn't, I don't know that I said this anywhere in here. Um, hopefully it's communicated in the weightiness of what I'm saying. I love you guys deeply. So much. And... Um, I'm sorry we're going through this, but I love you and committed to shepherd you through, through all this. Um, glad I'm here with you in this. So verse one, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There is a reason this is one of the most well-known psalms. Right, it's so popular among the Psalms. It's powerful. I mean, every single word in this Psalm proclaims a great truth for the follower of Christ. Henry Ward Beecher, an older pastor and theologian, he said about the Psalm, he said, it has sung courage to the army of the disappointed. It has poured balm and consolation into the heart of the sick and to captives in dungeons of widows in their grief, of orphans in their loneliness. Dying soldiers have died easier as it was read to them. Ghastly hospitals have been illuminated. It has visited the prisoner and broken his chains. It has made the dying Christian slave freer than his master and nor is its work done. It'll go on singing to your children and my children and to their children through all generations of time. It's so powerful because it describes a personal closeness to God, unlike any other psalm. It's often called the pastoral psalm because in it, you see how Jesus is your pastor. Like a shepherd is to sheep, so he is to you and I. David, usually, he's the one writing this, usually referring to God as a king, talks about him like he's right there with us, walking with us. He paints this incredible portrait of a soul-satisfying life with Christ. And if you consider it and meditate on it, God will use it to comfort you and draw you closer to himself. So I just want to walk through it a little bit slowly. That's our sermon today. And verse one alone is packed with enough. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, the one who is infinite, who created the universe and gives life to everything. That's the Lord we're talking about. And David is saying, that Lord, the one true God, is so close, he's a shepherd. The Lord God who rules with all authority is a a shepherd, gets down in the muck with the sheep shepherd. That's what David's saying. And by the way, whose shepherd is he? My shepherd. He doesn't say he's the shepherd of the whole world. He is, but that's not the way David communicates it to us. It's not the way God communicates himself to us. He's my shepherd. He's really personal, and that's where the rest of the psalm goes. He's a shepherd to me. He watches over me. He cares for me. Come what may, he's mine. See how personal this is, this relationship between you and God. When your world crashes down on you, he's there in the rubble with you holding you, calling you his. And because the Lord is his shepherd, he says, I shall not want. That might be the greatest promise in scripture. Uh, The CSB translates it, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I have what I need. A little bit less poetic, but I think actually gets the point of the text, especially in pain. See, I have the Lord, he is what I need. His presence and his promises are what I need. That's what I can't do without. So I can agree with the Apostle Paul that the present sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will one day be revealed in us. He doesn't say, I shall not suffer. He says, I shall not want. That when I'm suffering, I have what I need to get through it because I have Jesus, I have what I need. The peace we need, we only find in the good shepherd. Only he can comfort and carry us. Verse two, he makes me lie down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside still waters. When you're suffering, your pain does not feel like still waters. It feels like raging rapids. But the Lord promises that he will get you to the still water. You'll be able to come and drink and rest. And if life feels like it's raging, I just want to tell you the still waters are promised to you in Jesus. It is available to you. Verse three, he restores my soul. I love every single word of that sentence. Not one of his angels. He doesn't subcontract this out. Jesus himself, he, how close is he to you? He, he intends to be closer than anyone else. He restores my soul. Whether I'm in sin or I'm in suffering, I go to him and he redeems me. He brings me up out of the pit. When I'm weak, when I'm weak he strengthens my soul. When I'm depressed, he revives my soul. See, Jesus got up out of the grave. And because of that, he can bring dead things to life again. And in your pain, there's a temptation to harden your soul, to wall up. If your soul, maybe it's that your soul is just crushing around you. are like, it's a defense mechanism. I just want to wall off to anything, especially hope. And I promise you, he will restore your soul if you let him. I don't promise it to be easy. I just promise from scripture, God promises that he will. Charles Spurgeon, um, I've read this to you before. I feel like it's appropriate today. He said, see great deeps of trial bring with them great deeps of promise. For you much afflicted ones, there are words great and mighty, which are not meant for other saints of easier experience. You shall drink from deep golden goblets reserved for those giants in the faith who can drink great portions of wormwood also. See, trials are mighty enlargers of the soul. So yes, feel the loneliness of life. Here is a dreadful deep for you to sail on and a tempestuous deep much to be feared for your little boat may be easily wrecked. But don't forget that there is another deep whose remembrance will remove from you the bitterness of your present sorrow. There is a love in heaven towards you which will never grow cold, immortal and unchanging love. To my brothers and sisters suffering, listen now. To those denying suffering because you're afraid of the torrent of pain that'll come, let your deep call out so that you can hear the deep response. Your deep suffering has a deep answer. And today I just want you to, I want to invite you to fix your heart on it. Man, sometimes despair can be so great. You don't eat, you don't get out of bed. In fact, I, I recognize maybe you're listening to this on your phone because you're curled up in a corner and a friend that loves you sent you this message. Hear this hope in your soul. God loves you. Amen. He still loves you. Thank you Lord. He still loves you. The sermon that I was planning on preaching this weekend was out of John 5. Um, it's this guy that the title of the sermon was He's Still Working. Um, and someday you will hear it. But not this, uh, not this weekend. Um, but you know, in John 5, it's this guy who's, um, he's at this pool called the Pool of Bethesda, which means both house of disgrace and house of mercy. Same meaning, isn't that fascinating? Because it's where the blind and the lame and the crippled would go. Uh, they were kind of outcasts from society, put out there, house of disgrace. But they would go there in hopes of finding healing. And Jesus walks in 
and goes to this guy. The way the healing was set up, there was a pool and the water bubbled up and the first one in could get healing. And Jesus goes back to this guy who has been in the back of the room um, for, back of the room, somewhere in the room for 38 years, unable to get to the water because people kept going past him because he couldn't walk. And Jesus goes up to him and says, do you want to get well? What a simple question. Do you want to get well? And the guy's, I would have if I could have just gotten to the water. And Jesus, the one who doesn't need water to make someone well because he created water, looks at this guy and says, get up, take up your mat and walk. And he walks. And I just, I don't know, I thought about like 38 years. That's a long time. A lot of bitterness can set in over 38 years. A lot of wondering if God still cares. I don't know, just thinking about that as we're talking here. God loves you still. Still. Some of you may have been carrying around some hurt that is decades old. He loves you still. He's still working. And you can still find healing, okay? But the way you find healing, the only healing for those kind of wounds is the grace of Christ, the one who was wounded for you and I. But there is healing available to you. He's sitting right there with you now. He sees your darkness and your tears. And as he sits there with you, he says, give that darkness to me because he can take it and free you from it. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. John 15, 9, abide not in the darkness of your soul, but abide in his love. Luke 15 says his love is like a father's arms wrapping around his broken child saying, I love you. I will restore you. Don't worry about getting better. Just come to me. I'll take care of you. Psalmist keeps going. He says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. He will lead me to righteousness and he will do it for his glory. Jesus will take me down the path of righteousness. Felt convicted on this, not for mercy's glory, not for Spence's glory, for Jesus's glory. And let me say something. There can be no righteousness without justice. So I want to say something as a word of warning from God's word. Specifically, I want to address anyone in this room or listening or watching, anyone who may be seeking to pray on our children. We open our worship gatherings. They're open to the public. So anyone can come. And we do that because God opens his arms to anyone who would come to him. You need to listen to the word of God and be warned. First Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul talks about sexual immorality. And he says in verse 6, this means that one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner. Because the Lord is an avenger of these offenses. As we also previously told and warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this, that being this warning against a sexual offense against a brother or sister, does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. The only time in all the Bible God is called an avenger is right there. When it comes to sexually abusing others, he will get vengeance. And I'm just warning you. If you reject this and you seek to prey on others, you're not just rejecting me, you're rejecting God. And to do that to children, Matthew 18 says it would be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the sea than to cause a child to go away from the Lord. 
So I want you to know two things that if it makes you feel threatened, good. Number one, the Lord will take his vengeance out on you. And that alone should cause great pause in your soul. Number two, we're working with authorities, training more leaders so that we can recognize predators in our midst. So if that's you, for the sake of your own soul, there's a police officer always here at our services. And I encourage you to go turn yourself in today. And amazing, and as gracious as our God is, even you can find healing and redemption. Even you. Verse four. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. As a shepherd, when David talks about walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that's, that's like a real place. That's a real place where sheep can be killed and so can their shepherd. But David says, I'm going to walk. I'll face the valley one day, but I'm not going to run through it scared. I'm going to walk. Some of you need to let this be your salvation today. You're walking through hell right now. You need to be able to say, somehow, I'm not going to fear evil. Why? The only reason why is because you're with me. You're with me. In fact, verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. It's the oddest verse to me in the middle of all this. It's like the metaphor shifts away from the, the field into battle. Uh, prepare a table for me with my enemies around. Sounds a little bit like war. David's a man of war. He's being chased by his enemies. Once by the king before him, once by an army of his own son. But even when he's surrounded, in fact, hiding out in caves, look how he talks about his relationship with God. Y'all, in battle, soldiers don't like sit around to a banquet table meal when the enemy is nearby. You're eating MREs, they're gross, and you're just... It's just sustaining you, right? So that you can get through. But what Jesus does, he says, no, even in the moment where you feel surrounded by enemies on all sides, I'm not just there. I'm giving you such peace that you can sit down with me and have a meal. You can, you can breathe deeply and be at peace and still have joy. Verse six, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Where David says follow, probably our best translation would be the word pursue. In other words, the goodness and mercy of God stays right on the heels of the Christian. Charles Spurgeon, again, said about this so well. He said, in the dark days, as well as the bright days, the days of fasting and the days of feasting, the dreary days of winter, the bright days of summer, goodness supplies our needs and mercy blots out our sins. He is near. He's near. So to those who are hurting, the Lord says, come. Come sit down at the table I've prepared for you. I'm here for you. And the promise I want to give you is that the gospel promises that death, even death itself, and I think in that we can see suffering as well, as Paul said from Romans, as I said earlier, death is a shadow. The reason this passage gets read at funerals is because it talks about God being with us in death, but you got to get what the gospel does to death. Even as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not death itself. Because of what Christ did on the cross, I'll never experience the full force of death. Because it has been, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, swallowed up in victory. 
And Paul, as he writes those words, he even bursts into song. You go look at it, and probably in your Bibles, it does it most. It turns into almost looking like a psalm, even the way it's structured. He starts singing, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The, see, death comes into the world as a penalty for sin. But when Christ died for my sin, he set me free from that penalty. So yes, my body will breathe its last breath one day. But for Christians, to live is Christ and die is gain. So death for the Christian, it's like standing on the side of the road, an 18-wheeler comes barreling right down that right lane. You don't realize where you are. You wandered out in the lane. You're about to be hit by the truck. At the last second, someone jumps and pushes you out of the way. And when you're over on the side of the road, the shadow of the truck goes over you and just goes on by. That's what Jesus has done to death for the Christian. It's taken the sting out of it. Stood in front of the truck so you only ever have to experience its shadow. And you can say with Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And in this life, even if you're in unimaginable pain, goodness and mercy are here for you. Right on your heels. The gentle and humble shepherd is with you. And we, his fellow sheep, are here as best we can to offer the comfort of Christ to you. 2 Corinthians 1 gives us instructions on what to do. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction. Through, how do we comfort those in affliction? Through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ, our comfort overflows. So that's what we do. We don't comfort and give platitudes and stuff like that. We just simply say, in my affliction, man, Christ has met me. He has met me and comforted me. He has brought me up from the pit. I have experienced the goodness and mercy. One time I felt like I couldn't see it, but it was right behind me, and I've experienced it again. And I'll offer it to you today. In your affliction, the comfort of Christ, I promise you one day the comfort of Christ, the promise of Christ is one day this will be no more. It'll be no more. And we, the saints, are to take hope in that, even in this present dark age. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm just going to end there. I'm going to pray for us, and then we are going to comfort one another in song and in prayer. We're going to sing together the song in Christ alone. Just as a reinforcement and as a celebration and saying something that sometimes we may not even feel to be true, we're going to sing it over ourselves, reminding ourselves that it is indeed true. In Christ alone, our hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. It's cornerstone. This solid, I mean, just the, as you start to hear us sing it, you'll catch it. It's a song that um, is familiar to our church, but if you're newer with us, you should be singing the truths and the promises of Scripture about who Jesus is to us. As we sing that, I'm going to invite the elders of our church uh, to be available uh, for you, you can come and pray with someone. They'll also be available after the service. Uh, so I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll transition into that time. 
Father, thank you for the hope of Christ, the mercy of Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for leading and guiding and being the chief shepherd of our church. We are ruled by you, no one else. God, I pray that, um, I pray for comfort. Spirit, would you comfort those that are hurting? God, with this, this whole day be to your glory. Hopefully, Lord, that you would extend comfort to those that are hurting. Unity, Father, in our church, that we want to be about your glory, that we want to be ones who comfort others through the comfort we have found in you. So I pray for your, your grace on us in these next few moments and in the days ahead. We love you. We need you, Father. So we praise you. And we celebrate the only thing that gives us sure hope. And that's Christ, him alone. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.